My name is Dr. Helen Noble, and I'm a lecturer from Queen's University, Belfast, and I'm also assistant editor at Evidence-Based Nursing. Today, I'm talking to Professor Tom Quinn, and we're talking about routine supplementary oxygen for the normoxic patient with suspected acute myocardial infarction when it's no longer warranted. Hello, Tom. How are you? Uh, good afternoon. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you. Um, welcome. Can I first ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself and your interest in the area of oxygen management? Yes, I, I'm a coronary care nurse. I've been a coronary care nurse or a cardiac nurse for probably about 30 years now. And uh, I've worked in, obviously, the CCU setting. I've worked in intensive care. I've worked with the ambulance service and done a lot of emergency cardiovascular care, both clinically and uh, latterly in research. So, so I've given a lot of people oxygen in my time. Uh, for suspected heart attack. And so what does this paper tell us about this issue of oxygen management? Well, I, th I, think, I think what systematic reviews generally have told us, and, and, and the, the paper we're discussing is, is a further systematic review, was that we didn't really know whether oxygen was helpful or harmful. And as, um, as recently as this summer, uh, we still didn't know. Uh, I, I was on a group that has published, I think, three Cochrane reviews now on this subject. Uh, and uh, bringing together uh, what was rather scant and not terribly uh, high-quality evidence for a treatment that's been used for about 100 years, uh, it was quite shocking to see that we didn't really know. Um, our, our first systematic review in 2010 suggested oxygen might be harmful in patients with heart attack, and we asked for decent trials, adequately powered trials, to, uh, to tell us whether oxygen was associated with improved uh, outcome. Uh, or not. And um, I was asked to review then this uh, this more recent uh, paper from China, which was another systematic review, uh, which came essentially to the same conclusions, because obviously the uh, the information, the trials they've been able to access are the trials we accessed for our Cochrane review. Uh, and our updated Cochrane review, of course, came out, I think, the same week as I was asked to review this particular uh, paper. So, so the bottom line is up to the point of the publication of, of the, this latest systematic review and our Cochrane review uh, separately, uh, we still didn't know whether oxygen was helpful or harmful. So whilst we had the first trial, uh, which was not a bad randomized trial, um, uh, in Aberdeen back in the 1970s, which suggested oxygen was harmful, there haven't really been any, hasn't really been any, any better uh, trials uh, since that point. There have been attempts in Australia to... Uh, undertake uh, randomized trials, but the endpoints weren't patient-focused endpoints. They were about uh, the size of the heart attack, and uh, a significant proportion of the patients didn't come back for their MRI scan to estimate heart attack size, etc., etc. So all full of all sorts of problems. And then, uh, of course, in the summer this year, a, a group from Sweden, Robin Hoffman and his colleagues um, from the Karolinska Institute, uh, published the biggest ever trial of uh, oxygen in myocardial infarction patients uh, with um, 6,500 patients, 6,629 patients uh, in their trial. Now, if I give you a bit of perspective on that, uh, the, um, the FU et al. systematic review meta-analysis uh, that I've uh, commented on for, for EBN uh, had a total of... Uh, 921 patients in it. That was okay. all five of the randomized trials that have been reviewed previously. And now we have this game-changer or blockbuster trial mm -hmm. uh, which has been published, uh, which has sort of answered the question, actually, once and for all, I suspect. 
Okay, blockbuster trial. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so so taking it one step further, what then are the specific implications for practice due to these findings? Well, the implications for practice uh, are, I would suggest, based on the findings of the detox trial, which is the Swedish trial that's just been published mm-hmm. uh, with uh, 6,629 patients in, is that if, if the patient's oxygen saturations are 90 or above at presentation, uh, then oxygen is no longer necessary because oxygen um, is neither helpful nor harmful. It's just neutral. Mm-hmm. And the, we talk about important outcomes for patients. Uh, so this wasn't about the size of the heart attack. This was about one-year all-cause mortality. So really important, if we ask patients, and I've done this for other trials, what's important to you? It's about the long-term being well, you know, not uh, being alive, being well. Uh, and so this, this trial from uh, from Hoffman's group in Sweden uh, uh, looked at one-year uh, follow-up, one-year mortality, and there was no difference between patients who had oxygen or patients who just breathed ambient air uh, for their suspected heart attack uh, when they were followed up at one year. Uh, they also did then look at things like cardiac markers, like troponin, and there was no difference at one year. Uh, there was no difference in those either, actually. Okay. Um, so oxygen's neither helpful nor harmful. Uh, so it's, and they haven't got an economic analysis here, but it might well be a waste of money. But we give it to a lot of patients. Mm, mm. And this, of course, is, and, the, and the other key thing about this is that the, the baseline saturation of 90 as the trigger for enrolling patients in this trial uh, is, uh, is below the target oxygen saturation or the trigger threshold oxygen saturation uh, that's currently in, for example, the National Ambulance Guidelines in the UK, which suggest if the patient has uh, oxygen saturations of 94% or lower, that they should receive supplementary oxygen. So this, right. this, this changes those guidelines, I would suggest. Uh, and indeed, the, um, the European Society of Cardiology uh, guidelines changed on the day that the detox, the Swedish trial, was presented. And uh-huh. they now say... Uh, routine oxygen is not recommended in, recommended in patients with um, myocardial infarction whose oxygen saturations are 90 or above. Okay, very clear. So that's an important <laughs> finding. Yes, yes. Okay, so then um, you've talked about blockbuster trials, etc., and these very clear findings, but what further research do you think is needed in this area? Well, I think there is there is something about how we might... If you asked patients, and obviously in the setting of an acute myocardial infarction in the ambulance, emergency care, it's quite difficult to get true informed consent. And the the time window you have for obtaining that is is very, very short. It's in minutes, not in in hours, as you might have for for a more elective type study. And Mm -hmm. the the key thing for me is... um, you know how do how do patients feel about because I think patients expect to have oxygen and their families expect them to have oxygen and is that going to give rise to um, to challenging conversations in the heat of an emergency when the paramedics or or the emergency team are treating the patient and the uh, the wider public if you like and particularly the family or the the, the loved ones in the in the case of of this context. We'll be thinking, well, you haven't given oxygen. You're not treating my loved one yeah. right. So mm-hmm. there is this thing about how can we get across the message to um, to members of the public? How can we improve public understanding of the evidence base behind withholding something that's been given for 100 years now? Yeah. We're seeing that in, 
other emergency care trials at the moment. Uh, and when you have a traditional treatment uh, that hasn't been based on high quality evidence as, as come in through customer practice, and then that's challenged um, uh, through a trial, it can be um, can, can be quite um, quite challenging to communicate that with the public and understand why a trial is needed. Yes. The yes. other bit of this then is about, I suppose, it's implementation science, isn't it? It's how can we uh, we can present the evidence uh, and uh, then we can um, we can get it implemented in practice. Of course, it's not as easy as that. And in our most recent Cochrane review, we talk about a study from the northeast of England. Uh, where they surveyed uh, cardiac care units uh, to see what their oxygen policies were uh, for heart attack patients. And, uh, you know, this is almost a decade after we published our first Cochrane review, and there was still a lot of non-evidence-based practice. So so, so implementation science is, is perhaps one of the key uh, things we're going to need to be looking at with this. On the patient side, uh, no one's ever... Um, uh, looked at whether oxygen's helpful or harmful in those patients who are hypoxic. So if, you, if your saturations are below 90, for example, uh, then pathophysiological reasoning might suggest, well, topping up your uh, oxygen levels in your blood might be good for patients. But that's what we thought about the patients with heart attack in the first place. Uh, and um, and that doesn't seem to make any difference. And it, and it may be, and I don't know whether anyone would ever be brave enough to do this trial, it may be that uh, um, that trials of supplementary oxygen therapy in other acutely ill groups uh, and in the very, very sick uh, might be warranted. Now, an example of that might be a trial that's just starting in Australia in the ambulance uh, setting out there, which is for patients who've had a cardiac arrest. And we know from some uh, ICU data uh, published probably about five years ago that if you... Um, that there was an association, so it's not cause and effect, there was an association between the documented oxygen saturation on arrival on the ICU following resuscitation from cardiac arrest and subsequent mortality. And the higher oxygen levels, the worse you did. Right. So, you know, so this is, this is sort of paradigm shifting stuff, really, isn't it? It's certainly challenging our established practices. So, so there is a, uh, a rather challenging trial just starting in Australia looking at oxygen supplementation in cardiac arrest, for example, in that in that critical post-resuscitation period uh, uh -huh. where the patient now has spontaneous circulation. Uh, should we be turning the oxygen up, you know, to 15 litres a minute, which is what everybody used to do, pouring it into the patient, or should we have a more, um, more refined and evidence-based approach to that? Okay. Thank you. And then finally, for our listeners, if there was one key thing that they should take away from this podcast, what do you think that should be? I think it should be uh, when you go back into practice, uh, uh, just review what your practice is in the light of this um, this game-changing evidence that's come out from the Hoffman Group. And, and obviously, uh, our guideline developers, uh, not just the European side of cardiology, who have already uh, addressed this immediately, uh, but uh, but NICE uh, in the UK and other guideline developing groups probably need to uh, rapidly adjust their um, their guidance on supplementary oxygen in people with suspected heart attack. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this EBN podcast. For more information, please visit our EBN website at ebm.bmj.com. Mm -hmm.